Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 12, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. consider meditation as science, but it turns out the state of meditation, or meditating, can have some major measurable effects on our brains. From de-stressing to helping cancer patients, meditation is a new science. This week, we're playing a discussion that happened recently during the Rubin Museum of Art's Brainwave Festival. Bone meditation practitioner Alejandro Shaul and oncologist Lorenzo Cohen evaluate the healing potential of meditation. Not convinced? There's some hard science to back it up. Let's start a little bit about, we're talking, the topic was, is meditation the medicine of the mind? And so one of the things that we'd like to start is, what is meditation? And meditation is interesting because I think it, become, it has become such a popular word that for different people, it's a little bit different. Let me ask, how many of you either meditate daily or have in, engaged in meditation? Good, great. <laughs> I don't have to say much. <laughs> Maybe they came to actually meditate. <laughs> Maybe they did. So let me say a little bit of what, in the tradition that I've trained in, I've trained mostly in the Tibetan tradition. I've trained a little bit in other traditions as well, but mostly in the Tibetan tradition, uh, both from the Buddhist and the Burn traditions and mostly within the Dzogchen school of thought, mostly in the Burn tradition under Lopun Tenzi Namda, Isonis Lungklo Tempa Nima, and Tenzi Wanjur as Tim was saying. And when we talk about meditation, it's not a verb. You know, many times people think of meditation as meditating. But really meditation is a state of mind. And in fact, if you think of the word that in Sanskrit they use for meditation, vabana, it actually means to cultivate, to cultivate that state of mind that is usually characterized by two main features. One of them is the one that most people are accustomed to, which is calm, calming your mind, or as sometimes we would like to say, calming your monkey mind. You know that mind that goes from thought to thought, emotion to emotion, kind of calm that. And Part of what we'll talk today is about how, is, how these emotions kind of dysregulate you um, or get you out of that state of mind. And so, in a way, what meditation is, is cultivate that state of mind that is calm but also aware. The definition, actually, in Tibetan, Shingsal Rikpa, means clear and knowing. So there's the characteristic of the mind as knowing but with clarity. Calming has an important part in being able to see it with clarity. Also, in, Tibet, in Tibetan, we say gom for meditation, which is related to kom, which means familiarity. Again, like cultivation. Cultivating, getting familiar with that state of mind. So when we talk about meditation, most people think of meditating because that's the moment of cultivating, of being familiar with that state of mind that as we cultivate it, then we can bring in our daily life. And so that's, in a way, I think, what brought us together when you know, you're coming from the behavioral science. And this is, again, how we can change our behavior through what I've learned 
calls, it's called in the behavioral science research and the research field, intervention. I never used to call meditation an intervention until I met you. So um, it's how do we use meditation as an intervention? And as uh, people in my religious studies department always make fun of um, the title that I had at Anderson, mind-body intervention specialist, which took me a year to understand what it was. And it took us a year to get the title even approved at a <laughs> cancer center with MDs, PhDs. But one, one question that, that comes up and I've always had is the change that is talked about and this awareness that one seeks through contemplative practices, whether that is a state or a trait. In other words, is it something that's transient? When you're in that state of meditation, you can feel it then, you're aware of it then, but then an hour later, two days later, your brain has gone back to the state that it used to be in. And whether there's something that can be more permanent over time. Well, and that's part of what we're trying to do, right? I remember when I when we came together and I said, okay, how are we going to research this? I said, okay, we, we do a meditation and then we do before and after. And you said, well, we kind of know that after meditation, people will be relaxed. What happens an hour after? What happens a week after? What happens a month after? Can we still maintain that trait? And so I would say yes to both. It clearly is a state, meaning that we can transform a state of mind. And I'm sure many of you, I see so many meditators, have tried this, right? You're at the doctor's appointment and they're going to measure your blood pressure and they measure it once and maybe, you know, you're just coming. New York, I hear it's a little stressful. So <laughs> you, you get to the office and your blood pressure might be higher than usual. But what happens if you tell your doctor, give me five minutes? So you meditate whether it's with breathing, whether it's with visualization, you calm your mind, and then they take the blood pressure again, it can go down, right? Especially the upper. So that's clear, and I think you don't have to be any great meditator to achieve that. But what about successive, like becoming a trait? And that's, I think, when you find the definition of cultivation important, of familiarization important, because what happens is you become so familiarized with that state of mind, you cultivate it so much that then you bring it into your everyday life. So it's not just about when you're meditating, but how you can bring that state of mind when you stand up of your, from your cushion or your chair, when you walk, when you talk, when you integrate with your daily activities. Or as a friend of mine says, it's not about getting the cushion to be enlightened, right? It's about when you sit, cultivating that state of mind that then you can bring into your daily life. And that's why we do it with our patients, right? If it was just, okay, we bring them kind of an amine oasis of their treatment and then they get back to their state, have we really done much of a change? The question that comes up from the scientific side is, will the changes have a meaningful impact? And... I've been doing this research at, at MD Anderson for almost 13 years, looking at meditation, looking at yoga, working with people who have life-threatening illnesses, some of them at the end of their life, some of them with, with curable disease, but with a lot of stress. 
And we measure things like them telling us their quality of life, their mood, their physical functioning. We even collect hormones to look at stress hormones. And the next speaker in this series is a, a, somebody who focuses on looking at stress and physiological response. We look at the immune system. And I remember sitting with the president of MD Anderson, John Mendelson, and describing this research, who's very supportive of this line of research. And he said, but you, what you really need to do to have this area of science accepted is show that you can have a change in the brain. In other words, trying to show that the mind can actually change this thing that we call the brain. And that's, in some sense, for the, the contemplative practices, something that I believe the Tibetan tradition and other Eastern contemplative practices have known for millennia that there is this, there, there is actually no such thing as a difference between mind and brain and mind and body and brain and body, which of course the wonderful philosopher Descartes had many good things to offer, but that was not one of them, creating the dualism between the mind and the body and putting the brain somewhere, uh, the, the mind outside of it. And I think it's interesting. I, I'm not sure if in the Tibetan tradition we would say that they're actually the same. What is clear is that they're related. So if you say mind and brain the same, in a way, the way I hear it is, mind's, main, you know, main, mind's only address is the brain. And I think in the Tibetan tradition we would say the brain could be kind of one of the addresses maybe the summer address of the brain. But in fact, the main address is not at the brain. It's, you know, as I always point, they say mind is here. So mind is this heart mind, is this aspect of the mind that once it's calm. I mean, this is really where the monkey mind is. And so the brain has that address to it. But when we talk mind, and there include the whole aspect of the mind-body relationship, it's beyond brain. It includes brain, but I would say it's beyond brain. Now, when you see in the Tibetan text how it's described, they talk about mind, but they don't necessarily make the distinction. They don't necessarily talk about mind and brain. What they do talk is of experiences of intellectual mind, law, and kind of the sem, the, this, what many times we translate as mind-heart. And that relationship, it's clear that one affects the other. And that's what's interesting, I think, about the neuroscience research and the mind. But it's not exactly one all and the same. They are all interrelated. The challenge for science is even understanding the mind. Because so much is focused on our organs and the brain being that organ. And where there's been a roadblock up until recently is the belief that we are born with a neural map and neural network, essentially, that you could picture as, as a, a, a tree or a grape, grapevine. And it's all lit up, and all the connections are there. And then as we age, there's this process that they literally call pruning. So you start 
pruning away at the neural networks and the pathways in the neural networks that stay active are the ones that are used. And they're at their peak when you're probably five years old. And that explains why we all, all know that, that children can learn a language extremely easily. And they've done research actually looking <clears throat> at, at uh, children's ability from different cultures to recognize different sounds. And by seven, they start to not recognize different sounds. So Asian populations will not hear the R pronunciation the way that we would. Europeans won't hear the TH the way a North American would because that neural network is not active and therefore it literally gets pruned away. And so that would always, of course, put into question whether doing meditative practices could actually have an impact on the brain as an organ. Because if as we age, all we have is a slow pruning, then can it change? And what has changed in literally only the past 20 years, which of course for the history of science is, is just a fraction of time, is this, this new understanding, uh, something that's called neuroplasticity. Um, so I thought it, it may be worthwhile to just sure. discuss uh, some of the details about neuroplasticity, and as it says here, it's a true game changer. Hopefully you're all aware of uh, somebody by the name of Wilder Penfield. He was a neurosurgeon uh, from Montreal who back in the 30s uh, did very revolutionary studies where he uh, did brain surgery, and with brain surgery, for those who are not aware, patients are typically conscious. And so he has the, the skull open, and he starts touching different parts of the brain to elicit a response from the individual who's on the operating table. And if he touched a certain part within the motor cortex, they would say, oh, I feel that in my hand. And they touched another part and said, well, I feel that in my foot. And he was able literally to map the whole motor cortex and what parts of the brain were related to what body parts. And what he developed from this is this map that you see pictured up here. And so you see here the, the part of the brain that is controlling the hand is right beside the part of the brain that's controlling aspects of the face. And this is represented in some way as to reflect the amount of the brain that is activated for controlling that part of the body. And this is a very strange three-dimensional representation called the homunculus, which is essentially the brain map in three dimensions. So you can see the hands are extremely large. The lips are very large. And you can think about if you touch one part of the tip of your finger and then you touch the part that's beside it, you can differentiate that. But if you have somebody touch you in the middle of your back and then move over even half a centimeter, you're not going to be able to tell that they touched a different spot. And that, in some sense, is, is represented uh, with, within this three-dimensional uh, figure that you see here. And why uh, this was so critical is then neuroscientists could go in and actually start to look at the brain and look at how the brain changes. And unfortunately, to, to make advances in this kind of field, uh, there had to be some experiments done on animals that 
aren't so wonderful. But I'll describe a couple of them to you because they are so miraculous at allowing us to be able to understand how something like meditation can actually impact our brain and therefore our health. So one series of studies was done by this gentleman named Michael Merzinchik, who's at University of California, San Francisco, and he took, uh, amputated a finger off of a monkey. And before doing that, he was able to map literally each finger in the brain and be able to see that there's a different part of the brain, as you can see here, that represents each of, of the fingers. And then about a month later, went back in and remapped the brain. And he was able to show that the, say it was the ring finger that was amputated, the area of the brain representing the ring finger disappeared and it got mapped onto these other ones. He did similar experiments where he sewed the animal's hands shut, then remapped, and they all fused together. And so that means there was a dynamic change going on. And these were adult monkeys. Why that is, is so important to see is that means that even at advanced age, there could be changes that go on in the, the activity of the brain. Edward Taub took that step one further and looked at what's called denervating of the whole arm. So the arm was intact, but the nerves were severed. And you can see here, many of you may have seen the, the exhibit, uh, I think it was called the, the Human body world. body world. And this represents all the nerves in the body. And of course, you have the master controller at the top. So essentially, all the nerves along the arms were denervated. And there's a whole complicated story about these monkeys and, and the effect that they had on, on science. But after an extended period of time, he went and remapped the brain of these monkeys. And he found that if he touched a part of the face, that the, the brain region for the arm lit up. And so that means, and as you, could, as you saw here, the hand is right beside the face. So this neuroscientist, Ramachandran, took that information, and he'd been working with, with amputees uh, who have this horrendous phenomenon called phantom limb pain. So the arm is not there, and, it, and it's a very perplexing uh, to the medical world. Why would you have pain in your arm? if your arm is physically not there anymore. And you, they, they picture the arm and they feel the arm. And if the amputation happened with the hand clenched, they feel the hand clenched. So he, wanting to be as low-tech as possible, brought in one of these patients who had had an amputation many years earlier and who had phantom limb pain and got a Q-tip and stroked the face of this individual. And the person said, I feel the pain in my arm. It feels like you're touching my arm. He took hot water and just ran it down the cheek of this individual. And it felt as if the hot water was running down the phantom limb. That series of observations was published in the top journal uh, in the world. And he did it just sitting at his desk, which is uh, quite phenomenal. Then, of course, he went further and, and did all the neuroimaging and showed that he was able to show that the neural map of the brain had, had changed and the face had taken over where the arm was. Now what was revolutionary is that he was able to, because the brain got miswired, he was able through a simple series of illusions, through this mirror technique of, of having the person see their arm there even though it's not there, to remap that brain. 
And so that was able to, to show that the brain can change. And the brain can change because of the mind. So the mind has control. And up until that time, it had been believed that, as I'd mentioned earlier, that once you have what you've got, and that's it. It's just a downhill slope. And so those experiments, and then many others that, that have followed in the past decade, have shown that through mental practice, you can change certain parts of the brain. And actually, the difference between learning to play five notes on the piano and practicing it regularly for a week is not that difference different from when you practice it once and then imagine playing those five notes. Right. And you can actually go in and look at the brain and you can see that that activity has changed the way the brain is functioning. So this also creates the, kind of opens the field to meditation being able to be an intervention in order to expand the brain, helping remap, in a way, the brain in, in different ways. And in a way, that's the research that Richie Davidson and others have been doing. Well, and so the issue is, if somebody has a condition for which we really understand the part of the brain that is, say, acting abnormally or misfiring, an obsessive compulsive disorder is a, a perfect example of that, that in theory, you should be able to develop a mind-body technique that could go in and fix the misfiring. And Jeffrey Schwartz, who's a psychiatrist, actually did that with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And obsessive-compulsive disorder, there's a certain circuit in the brain very well mapped on where the misfiring is going on. And through a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and meditation, and from, for him it was critical that you had both components, he was able to show not only that these uh, individuals' obsessive-compulsive disorders go down, the behaviors in, improved, but he could show on neuroimaging that the brain was changed, which is probably something that the Tibetans have believed for 5,000 years, that we're able to, through mind practices, change not only our brain, but all aspects of our physiological functioning. And it's only in the past decade past decade, only 10 years, that people are accepting that this is so. And there's still controversy out there. Well, and partly it's because it's only in the past, maybe a little more than a decade, that there has been research in this area. And the only way, as you're saying, whether it's Mendelssohn or whether it's anyone in the, in the scientific arena, the way they want, they would accept it is if there's research to prove that that is the case. Knowing it for 5,000 years, it's not enough. Right. They prefer it to be they prefer it to be published in Nature than you know that have you know th this whole library of texts right. stating it because that comes from the first person perspective rather than the third person perspective. Exactly. Yeah, the Tibetans have been doing neuroscience and advanced psychological research for thousands of years, but it's the first person narrative. And we discount the first-person narrative, and it needs to be, as you're saying, the third person and hundreds of people and, and showing that it is a, a measurable phenomenon. And that's, I think, what meditation can become. It's kind of empowering, because it's empowering yourself, right? I mean, especially if you're 
able to notice and acknowledge the issues. So if you notice that you are very tense, that you get to the elevator at work and someone looks at you and, with, and you're not sure, well, is, are they trying to judge me? Did I dress weird? You know, you have all these ideas and you're always kind of thinking something is wrong. And maybe by mistake, this person, when he comes out of the elevator, he touches you and you get all angry. If you notice that that is a pattern in your behavior, you can actually say, wait a minute, why am I getting angry at this? So by self-reflection, you can start training in meditation and being calm. And then when that thing happens again, you're going to react very differently. Now, in science, we always believe that, well, if the same input arrives, you know, we, we, we produce the same input or, the, you know, pushing someone in the elevator, you would expect the same kind of reaction. But as you change the person, the behavior of that person will be different. And so in a way, you can think of if someone is stressed, then their behavior would be anger, let's say. But if we are able to change that stress, even in the same situation, the behavior actually can change too and can be calm. Perfect example is what Tenzi Wanjiru Bhutia calls today the, you know, our, our modern demon is traffic, right? And so we are in traffic and people are cutting off and usually that's when we say all our mantras, all our mudras, right? <laughs> it's when it, they all come out, right? But if we're able to take a deep breath and calm ourselves, we can actually have very different mudras and mantras, very different expressions. Instead of saying, you can say, go ahead. <laughs> and you too. <laughs> Wouldn't our world be very different? And so, in a way, it's an intervention. And in that case, it would be either a self-intervention, because you acknowledge it, but even if it's as a group, if someone tells you, look, you're, you're being very stressed. Why don't I help you and give you this intervention. Now, what's been hard is, you know, where's the baseline? And I know that that's part of the problem in some of the research, because by the time we get, if we find meditators, by the time we, we research their brains, they're already meditators. So it's important to do it. What happens before they become meditators, and when do they reach the line, as we have spoken many times before, that they are actually this new behavior is part of their life. As we discussed many times, it's interesting that in many different traditions, six months seems to be the time that you need to incorporate this behavior, right, if into your daily life. And by then, it'd be interesting to see if we can research the brain kind of before they start it, somewhere in the middle, and, and somewhere after six months, and then what happens after that. And then also, of course, be interesting to see, did they stick to their behavior? Well, that's one of the, the challenges, is making it to that point. And, and there was uh, some research in, in, with the focus on neuroplasticity, and not on meditation per se, but the concept of learning something new. And this was work done with people who were blind and learning to read Braille. And so they mapped the brain and could, of course, map the, the individual fingers. And the Braille reading finger was a much larger activity of the brain. But these people were learning this skill, and they were learning it five days a week, Monday to Friday. 
and then I had the weekend off. And they mapped the brain on Fridays and they mapped the brain on Mondays. And there was an increase throughout the week in the, the learning, so to speak, from a neural perspective. And then by Monday, it had dropped down. And then every Monday, they started again. And by Friday, that part of the brain was much larger again. And by Monday, it had dropped down until six months. And then at six months, the Monday map started to grow. And what was fascinating is that the ability to the, their correlation between how well they were learning was related to the Monday maps, which became something permanent. And then I think it was about two or three months later, they remapped the brains, and it was equivalent to the Monday map. But they had to make it past that six-month mark. And it's, it's interesting, and, it, and it's not just when we've spoken to practitioners of contemplative traditions that they say, you need to practice for six months. You need to practice regularly for six months. And I think it hasn't been done for meditation before, and it'd be a fascinating study for us to do, that you, you, I would hypothesize you'd see the same kind of growth in the mental maps. The neural network would be maintained when you're practicing regularly. If you go three days, as many of us do, not doing that healthful behavior, in this case meditation, it's going to start to, to go back to baseline. And of course, the question is, what's the dosage, right? I mean, uh, how much do you need? Do you need 20 minutes a day? Do you need 30 minutes a day? But again, I mean, I was thinking, we were saying, you know, this is kind of music practice, but meditation, I was saying, you know, it's cultivation, it's familiarity, it's the same. It's practice. That's why we call it practice, right? When, you know, people in Dharma groups say, we're going to meditate. They don't say we're going to meditation. They say we're going to practice. You know, we're going to cultivate our state of mind so that we can get to that place in a way that, you know, beyond that six months and make it a habit. That's right. But I think dosage is important because, you know, six months means what? It means how many kind of accumulation of how many minutes or hours. Yeah, once a week for six months will do nothing. You know, you won't change the neural network. But if we do it, so it's clear that we have to do it every day, at least Monday to Friday. And even if we, <laughs> we stop Saturday and, Friday, and, and Sunday, we give a break. We take vacation from meditation. It's kind of interesting. Uh, many people would do meditation as a vacation from what they, they do. But, and then kind of catch up on Monday restart and slow after six months. But then again, even if we say six months is how much? So for example, in this one, in, in, the, in the music, how much did they have to pose the dosage? Mm, it's actually two hours a day, which is a lot. Or they were imagining playing for two hours a day and had, had a very similar effect. So that's when visualization comes in handy, right? <laughs> if you're not actually meditating, you can visualize your meditating maybe. <laughs> Lying on the bed. Meta meditation. <laughs> so the challenge I think that, that we face is, is getting this accepted. And I think that your comment earlier is that you need to show it scientifically. But I think that's necessary but not sufficient. Because there's, there's so much data accumulating now in the area of if, if taking it even broader of lifestyle 
matters for our health. I was at a, a, a big reception in Houston the other night celebrating the Texas Heart Institute. The Texas Heart Institute is, is one of the best heart institutes in the world. That's where first bypass surgery was done. They spoke for about half an hour about all the genes and all the new technologies, but there wasn't a single word about stress, about diet, and about exercise. And we know that those three factors are critically important for preventing your first heart attack and, and of course, subsequent. And when it comes to the world of cancer, there's a very good understanding now of the relationship between stress and biology, stress and your risk of not doing as well when you're under treatment, obesity being a key link. And it's not something that, that is accepted. It's not part of the standard of care. Now, I think also, you know, it has to be in a way, all it has to do with this first-person perspective. Um, a scientist that we both know well, he's a head of palliative care at Anderson. He was telling me the other day, I mean, how he got to endorse, in a way, meditation. And I didn't realize this story until recently, and I know him for many, many years. And he was telling me how when he gave a talk in their Grand Rounds, and he started experiencing, he, he had always heard about it, but he started experiencing, he realized, wow, this helps. In those 20 minutes that you let it practice, I felt the change, my colleagues felt the change, and now I can say, hmm, I can endorse this. But it was not until, until then, he was very like, well, okay, if you're doing it, and Lorenz is endorsing it at, at the Integrative Medicine, must be good, but, you know, I don't know. So when he felt it himself, it was a change. So it's interesting, even in scientists, and we're talking with Tim about this, you know, we all have our own bias as well, right? But we have our preconceptions and our assumptions. And so until you feel it, you, you're not really sure what it is, you know, am I really endorsing something really weird because it's out of the box? But the moment you feel it, it becomes, again, first-person perspective. So there is a place, I mean, and I, and I would even argue that the first-person perspective has always, in a way, a place in choosing what kind of research you do. And certainly what you'll do for yourself. Because I think that with all the data in the world, if you then go and you try it and it doesn't work, so to speak, then you're not going to necessarily believe that data. And so I agree that, that physicians and scientists will view things very differently once they do it. There's still, still a lot of skepticism about the benefits of acupuncture. But if a physician, and I have known many of them at MD Anderson who have chronic pain, and then we suggest acupuncture, and they don't try it, and they don't try it, and then eventually they do, and it works, then they believe acupuncture works. <laughs> That's not science. <laughs> That's... That's first-person perspective. So when it comes to, to treating ourselves, first-person perspective is, is good enough, even if you're the analytical-minded scientist-physician. Um, well, and that's a little bit what we do, too, in the, in the clinic of integrative medicine, right? I mean, we can't wait until all the things are proven, and the patients come and say, I don't care if you've done research. I want to do that yoga, or I want to do acupuncture, I want to have a massage, you know, I mean, I mean, especially, I mean, in massage, 
people are saying, it relaxes me. Even if it's just that, that's great, right? So why do I need all this research? And sometimes, sometimes with meditation, I hear people in, in, uh, in dark groups asking the same question. Why are you researching this? Don't you know that this helps? <laughs> <laughs> and you've heard for 5,000 years that people have been helped. Do you need to do research on it? And, you know, I was actually reading a, a, this a book, Embracing the Mind, by Alan Wallace, who's both, he has done, I think his undergraduate was in physics and then became religious studies, and he's done a lot in this dialogue. And he was saying how science could be both, in a way, <clears throat> a way of feeling more validated for those either Western meditators or those who are interested in coming into meditation but hesitating and feeling that, well, if it has research of proven things with health, well, maybe I will try it. At least it's not so out there. But the other thing that is interesting is that science can also help these traditions, these meditative traditions, in a way to keep you in track. So it's not so dogmatic, of, you know, uh, now you, you, know, you have to be careful of now saying, oh, so there was research, so now we know, so meditation is the panacea, right? So now everything is cured by meditation because either I tried it and it worked, or because I, now we've done, you know, we've seen that there's research on it, so now I can say it works for everyone. And part of it is, and we've known this in, in many realms of medicine, it's not necessarily for everyone at every stage. So it's, it's different. And so that also complicates our research. That's right. And as, as is the case for, for allopathic medicine and these drugs that are consumed, they don't work for everybody. But what's different about meditation that we're learning is that it actually can impact the brain in a more profound way than in particular some of the mental health drugs that are out there. And we've learned this from, from, in particular, Zindel Siegel's work, who's from uh, Toronto, a clinical psychologist, who's been working, focusing his career on helping uh, people who are depressed not have a relapse of their depression after they've been initially treated. And drugs haven't been that effective in helping the patients who he works with who have really chronic, unremitting depression and, and having relapse after relapse. And he was very interested in mindfulness-based stress reduction that John Kabat-Zinn started, but putting a cognitive behavioral therapy twist to it. So he calls it mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. <clears throat> so taking into account aspects of the uh, Vipassana-based meditation of mindfulness, but then other parts of cognitive therapy. And he did a fascinating study where he compared mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to standard antidepressants. And then they did the neuroimaging. So he'd shown previously that it's very effective at, at decreasing relapse. And we know from neuroimaging studies of Prozac and other antidepressants, the exact brain regions that are affected. And so one would hypothesize that if you were to image the people in both groups doing the meditation versus the drug, that the same brain regions would be changing. And in fact, it was the exact opposite. So the, the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex and increased activity in the emotion center of the brain, the amygdala. Prozac did the exact opposite. 
increased activity in the prefrontal cortex and blunted the emotion center. But the patients were getting well at a similar rate. And if they, took, if they were on both, they actually got better, better than and faster than if they were on either one. And so what that means, in particular for the monkey mind that you were talking about, is that the meditation actually decreased this overactivity, the overanalytical side, and allowed the emotion side to come up, but in a healthy manner. And so in that sense, meditation is definitely medicine, but a very different kind of medicine than the targeted pharmaceuticals that we're developing. And we're really so ignorant, I believe, but at the start of this frontier of a new medicine where we're taking into account the mind. To believe that you can just use your thoughts, if you're a paraplegic, to move your wheelchair forward. Two years ago, nobody would have thought that was even possible. To think that you can just think as a cursor is running through the alphabet, that that's the letter I want, which is what Stephen Hawking does to communicate. Just a wire on the brain hooked up to a computer. Your thoughts controlling things. It's, it's revolutionary. This is, I, I believe, something that people who have really done this first-person narrative for millennia and passed this down from tradition to tradition have probably known. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg to uncover some of this. And so the dialogue between the, the traditions of, of science and philosophy and spiritual practices is going to uh, take us to a whole new era. And luckily, both sides of, of the discipline are now open to talk to each other. And I think the other part that meditation can help is <clears throat> creating space. You know, because even for those thoughts, like you were saying, you know, we're paraplegic to have the thought of, I will move and then move. One of the things that meditation is, it's not necessarily a no thought, but it's a creating the space for even thoughts and emotions to happen, but not disturb the space. And so creating that space internally and then without manifesting externally allows all these other things. And part of what is, it's interesting about meditation is that it's that cultivation of inner space, which allows you not to react to everything that is happening but actually to be more centered that we call home and then act from there, whether acting is asking the, you know, with the mind for the body to move or different aspects of the emotion, being able to control the emotion. But it's space, creating the familiarity with space and being familiar at home is really kind of the basic medicine of meditation. Thanks for listening this week. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our Girls' Night Out series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week. <laughs>